0: It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore, from WBEZ. David Stone is standing on the northeast corner of the Michigan Avenue Bridge looking at a sculpture. It's a uh, life-sized bronze bust of a uh, distinguished-looking man with a mustache and a little goatee. The bust is of Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable. Today, du Sable is considered the father of Chicago. As the plaque on the bust says, he built his home on this spot in the late 1700s, becoming Chicago's first permanent settler. Du Sable was likely born in Haiti to a French father and black mother. And David is fascinated by this bust. Because when he was going to school in the 60s, he never heard much about du Sable. The older history books refer to the Father of Chicago as John Kinsey. John Kinsey was the white guy who later moved on to DeSable's property. Even though he arrived after DeSable, Kinsey got credit for founding the city. In 1937, a plaque commemorating the site of the Kinsey Mansion was placed near this spot. The plaque called Kinsey Chicago's first civilian. For decades, a person walking by here might have thought that Chicago's story began with John Kinsey. But then, in 2009, this bust of DuSable appeared, changing the narrative about Chicago's first settler. So, David wants to know, who decides what statues, plaques, and monuments go up? For him, it's a question about power. In George Orwell's 1984, who controls the present controls the past. Who controls the past controls the future. I'm Jake Smith. And today, we're going to trace the story behind a particular monument, the DuSable bust. It's a nice case study that reveals what's required to successfully create a public memorial. We'll also hear stories about a couple of other memorials. It turns out, ordinary citizens can shape how history is told. But the process can be long, expensive, and bureaucratic, with plenty of pitfalls. First step in getting a new plaque or statue, build support. Throughout the 20th century, activists fought to get DuSable into the historical record. Members of the black community established the DuSable Museum and got DuSable's home site added to the National Register of Historic Places. But they still felt something was missing. There was no statue of DuSable anywhere in the city. That's Harry Fouché. He helped make the DuSable bust a reality. By the time he got involved with the effort in the 2000s, activists had been trying to get a statue for decades with no success. Why? The problem was they would ask the city to pay for it. Which brings us to step two, find the money. The city rarely pays for markers, and bronze isn't cheap. Michelle Duster learned the hard way while working on a different statue. She's the great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells, an influential Chicago journalist and anti-lynching activist. For 10 years, Duster has worked to get an elaborate monument to Wells erected in Bronzeville. The only thing that we need is money. She's raised $100,000, but needs 200000 more to actually build it. Given Wells' reputation, Duster's been surprised by the slow pace of fundraising. That level of adoration for her has not translated into financial support as much as I thought it would. Now, Duster is raising money at the grassroots level from small contributions. But with the DuSable bust, Fouché took a different approach. My friend Leslie Bernardin was a very successful businessman. Born in Haiti, Bernardin made a fortune in cars and real estate in Chicago. He was now retired, and Fouché says he'd been looking for a way to give back to the city. So Fouché suggested, why not a statue? He thought maybe he was one of the Haitian heroes back home. I said, no, 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 no. A statue of Jean-Baptiste de Sabor, because there is none. After talking with the city, Fouché says, they came to an agreement. If Benardin would pay for the statue, the city would place it at the site of DuSable's home. Now they were on to step three, design the statue. Benardin hired sculptor Eric Blome. He creates bronze sculptures for cities and companies around the world. But Blome says DuSable presented a challenge. As a sculptor, what I'm looking for is, what does he look like? And we just have no idea. There are no photos of DuSable, just one rough sketch. So Bloem decided to do his own interpretation. He found a model, a Haitian guy who worked at McDonald's, and he also read up on DuSable. Was there anything that you gleaned from his personality or his life that you tried to reflect in the sculpture? He was really proper. So I wanted that, like, tight collar with the neck scarf, and I wanted him to look like something out of a, a historical film. So I even rented some old film, like some films that depicted that era. With the final design in place, it was on to step four, getting it approved. Somebody at the city has to okay every public plaque or statue. The ones in parks get approved by a park district committee. Markers that qualify as public art, like the DuSable bust, get approved by the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, or DCASE. The Park District declined to be interviewed, and DKs did not respond to multiple requests to discuss how they make these decisions. But from talking to people who have gone through the process, we learned that often, you have to negotiate. For instance, Mike Torney worked on a plaque to commemorate Chicago's 1919 race riot. Torney says he wanted the plaque to quote a poem by Claude McKay about fighting injustice. I'll read it to you if you want, I got it right here. Like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. And of course the Park District thought, you know, some of it's on it sounded in some theory. In the end, Torney settled for less provocative Martin Luther King Jr. quotes. During the approval process, the city also fact-checks historical details. For example, historians debate whether DuSable was born in Haiti or Illinois or even Canada. So which to put on the plaque? DK says they consulted the city historian on that. The resulting plaque lists his birthplace as St. Mark, Haiti. Bloom, the sculptor, poured the final product, and the bust was finished. On October 17, 2009, they unveiled it in a public ceremony. OK, everybody, count up on three. One, two, three! I share this story with David Stone, who brought us the question. He says he'd always suspected the city made these decisions unilaterally. But I'm glad to know that there is the democratic component to the process. But there's one final step when you create a public plaque or monument. You have to donate it to the city, meaning the city could choose to put it in storage anytime. Now, there's no sign that the DuSable bust is going anywhere soon. But remember that John Kinsey plaque from the 1930s? The one calling Kinsey Chicago's first civilian? It's gone. Now there's a new Apple store where the plaque used to be. This is the kind of thing that worries David. If you let that one go, then when fashions or politics or tastes change, then the DuSable one may go... 50, 75 years later. If any, anyone who says, I have the full truth and that's it, almost certainly doesn't. <laughs> Reporting came from me, Jake J. Smith. Support comes from the Conant Family Foundation. Next time on Curious City, Chicago's oldest laws go back to the 1830s. They regulated trash in the streets, use of firearms, polluting the river, and included this crucial regulation. Any person who shall be guilty of the indecent exhibition of any stallion or stallions shall be liable to a fine of $3. Chicago's oldest laws and what they tell us about the city. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City.